take your Bibles with me this morning. I'm calling an audible in the last minute. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm thankful to be able to call an audible that you guys will bear with me when something gets changed last minute like this morning. I was telling a few gentlemen today that I just didn't feel comfortable where I was at in Luke this morning and um, began to pray and seek the Lord today and this text of Scripture just wouldn't leave my heart and the more I thought about it the more I looked at it the more the rest of the service pointed to this passage of Scripture so I thought well Lord it's your words it's not going to fail so let's look at this text so um, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Many of us know that from time to time we go through this life as Christians navigating, as pilgrims in this world, um, and and it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes our spirit, our heart is uh, weighed down, and all the joy and all the affection and all the delight that we might have in Christ or see in Christ seems to be missing, uh, seems to be uh, not as powerful in any given moment, and We're needing our affection stirred again. That's a common truth throughout Scripture. It's not something just you and I experience, but we find it all over the place in the Bible. Even Paul talking and writing to other believers in his time saying, I I need to be refreshed by you. I I need to remember the Lord's goodness shown to me through your friendship, through your partnership, or through your ministry to me. We all run through seasons of dryness. The Puritans would often call it uh, the darkness of the soul or the winter of the soul. Just times our hearts are heavy. And in those moments, what do we do? I mean, we want to experience joy, right? We want to be filled with pleasure and satisfaction and delight and know our purpose and the fulfillment that we have as Christians. And we know those things should be coming from the Lord, but we're struggling with tasting them. So what do we do? Well, we remember the Gospel, don't we? There's nothing in all of creation that brings as much joy to the Christian's heart as knowing the Gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is applied to you permanently. I've been on this kick of highlighting Psalm chapter 4, verse 7 where David gives this awesome statement. He says, he's talking to the Lord, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have, people of the world, than they have when their grain and wine abound. And what he's saying there is, you've brought more pleasure to me and more joy in my life than anybody in the world can claim to have with all of their wealth and all of their riches and all of their abundance and all of their worldly stuff. God, you bring more joy to me. And why is David able to say that? Because he knows that through faith, he has a relationship with the God of the universe. And that ultimately, that God will welcome him into his presence. Knowing that we have been forgiven of sin through the mere mercy and grace and love of Jesus. And that that forgiveness will usher us into eternity with Christ forever sparks that joy renewed within us, right? And so, it's that reason I want to come to 1 Corinthians 6 this morning. I need my joy renewed. 
We need our joy renewed. We need our affection stirred. We need to remember the gospel. Now, as we get into this text, it's not going to appear to be a very joyful text. Because in understanding the gospel and and the deep, deep love of Christ shown to us in salvation, we first have to remember or examine where we are apart from Christ. And that's never fun. Nobody likes talking about their sin, right? Nobody likes digging into the Bible and seeing their wickedness exposed and just how seriously offensive that is to a holy God. Nobody's going to enjoy the first part of this. So just get ready. But the last part, the last part after we see how, how hopeless we are and how much Christ has done for us, I hope will leave us as passionate, zealous people for Jesus. So let's get into the hard part of the text. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul's writing to this church that he's having trouble with and he's had trouble with for some time. And in the first part of chapter 6, they're bringing lawsuits against one another. And he's just saying, this is, this is absurd. All right. On one hand, you're, you're going to outside courts before unbelievers and you're, you're asking them to settle the disputes within the church. That means nobody's wise enough among you to handle this. But also, the fact that you're just suing one another. You can't get along. It's sad. He ends that um, thought in verse 7 and verse 8. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Instead, you're the ones wronging and defrauding even your own brothers. And so he's just kind of given this stinging rebuke to this church that's really struggling. And then he seems to change thoughts here in verse 9. And he reminds them why they ought not be separated. Because they all come from the same sinful place and are now in the same place with Jesus Christ. And that ought to unify them. So the gospel portrayal here of Paul is a unifying um, lesson for this church. It's a joy-inducing lesson for this church. It's a sobering reminder of reality. And he begins in verse 9 saying, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And that, that is the sobering, shocking, unpleasant reality of sin. Your Bible might translate it, and it's possible to translate the word unrighteous as wrongdoers. Do you not know that those who are wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, Paul asked this in the form of a question. It's a rhetorical question. It might as well be a statement. Those who are unrighteous will not, period, finalization, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is a monumental reality for us to consider. We first consider what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a phrase that's important for us as Christians to know. It's a central figurehead in the whole New Testament. Christ spends a lot of time on it. In fact, Luke chapter 17, where we're supposed to be chronologically, talks all about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is uh, all that involves the rule and reign and authority of God. It's what governs us now as Christians, which, by the way, is, is a huge thing, right? We're, we're no longer dictated by the world. Society and culture at large doesn't 
tell us anymore what is pleasurable or, or entertaining or, or what's supposed to give us joy or happiness or peace in, in this world. Culture doesn't get to determine that anymore. The kingdom of God determines that for us. So it's our governing, um, it's our governing institute. It's all that represents the rule, reign, authority, power of God, purpose of God, plan of God, goodness of God. It represents our redemption, our salvation. In short, it's everything we long for, right? It's eternity, heaven, eternity with God. It's such a big deal to Jesus that he tells his disciples and us by connection when he teaches them how to pray. He says, pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we ought to be longing for the full consummation of the kingdom of God. Where everything is made right and evil is purged and all the goodness of God reigns supreme. That's heaven. That's eternity. And that's our end goal, right? We're enduring this life so that one day we'll be ushered into the kingdom of God. It's a place we want to be. A place we want to dwell forever. And the sobering truth of verse 9 is Paul is highlighting who will not be there. Who will not enjoy the goodness of God and the plan of God and the ideals of God, the, the principles of God, the rule and, and good reign and authority of God. This is who will not be in that pleasurable place of paradise. And it's the unrighteous. That's all of us. Right there, every single one of us are encompassed and condemned. Not one of us get the kingdom of God. It's not just dwell there also. He uses a specific word, the word inherit. It implies a little bit of ownership. As Christians, when we're saved, we have an inheritance with Christ. We get to take ownership, take stock in the kingdom of God. But those who are apart from Christ, still in their sin, who are unrighteous, do not get that. They don't have that inheritance. They don't get to take that stock. They don't have that blessing. This verse alone, this one rhetorical question, ushers into us, whether we like it or not, absolute truth. There is no bending of this rule. There is no compromise on this truth on God's part. God is the final judge. He is the final determiner of every individual's eternal destiny, heaven or hell. And this is His standard. The unrighteous will never set foot in the kingdom. The gates will be shut forever. Some will wake up very suddenly and very surprised to realize the kingdom is not their destination, but they're like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They awake in Hades to great dismay, torment, and anguish. They don't realize what the end of Psalm 1 says, that the unrighteous, the wicked, will never stand in the congregation of the righteous. This is a universal, eternal, absolute truth. It will never, as long as God exists, it will never Never change. So if you think you can talk your way out of this verse, if you think you can manipulate your way out of this, you think you can skirt the issue, 
think you can convince God otherwise, you will not. The unrighteous will absolutely never inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the end of verse 9 and, and then verse 10, Paul gives us an example of unrighteousness. And by the way, you're going to find yourself on this list. I do. We all do. <clears throat> he starts off saying, do not be deceived, which is so applicable for our world, right? Because we're living in a time, and it's really nothing new, but, but we're experiencing a time where um, technology has allowed the message to advance more rapidly and, and um, penetrate society more fervently. We're living in a time when people would say all that God deems as um, wrong and sinful is archaic and ancient and modern times has a different view of what God thinks. So God's perhaps changed His mind because the things He once denounced are now not that bad anymore. And in fact, you can indulge and live in this lifestyle of unrepentant sin and God will still um, look the other way and save you. Paul's saying don't be deceived. And don't ever let anybody try to tell you that the first part of verse 9 is no longer true or applicable. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you can live an unrighteous lifestyle apart from Christ and inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And we live in a world that is pushing that deception. And if you are not grounded in Scripture, Matt Chandler says this, you will be a slave to whatever sounds right. And there's a lot of things in the world that sound right, but are not truthful. And many people, many churches, many denominations are being led down the path of destruction because they compromise the truth of verse 9, thinking that you can be unrighteous and inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, don't listen to that foolishness. Don't forget the truth. Don't forget reality. Don't be deceived. At all costs, avoid such thinking and beliefs. The world will be in an uh, unfortunate shock when they awaken eternity or when Christ comes back. Because everything in verse 9 and 10, this list here that Paul's mentioning, is celebrated by the world. I was asked last year by a certain organization on campus here at the university if I would come and speak to them and tell, tell them that it's okay to live in a certain lifestyle and be a Christian. And Paul says that's just not the case. Don't be deceived. Well, look here at the list that he gives us. In verse 9, the last half, he mentions one, two, three, four things that are all sexual in, in nature. He groups sexuality together. He first says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's try to consider briefly each one. Now in context, this was a modern day lifestyle among the people of Corinth and the Roman world. And it is in our day as well. 
Don't be deceived, he says, neither the sexually immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who corrupt and pervert all uh, of God's intention for sexuality. We don't have to go into a whole lot of detail concerning that matter, right? We identify with that truth. Those who treat sex immorally are the sexually immoral. Which means they treat sex in ways that God never intended nor takes pleasure in. Sex is a good and gracious gift of God between a male and a female in the covenant of marriage. It's meant for procreation and enjoyment. And anything outside of that falls into the category of sexual immorality. It is rampant today. And I am becoming more and more convinced that there is not a single human being who hasn't struggled with sexual immorality. With their eyes, with their mind, with their heart, and by their actions. It is such a pervasive problem that I would be willing to bet every one of us are caught in the first statement. He goes on and he says, nor will the idolaters inherit the kingdom of God. Those are people who idolize anything but God. You could really begin to start filling in a whole lot of blanks. It might be money, career, popularity, relationships, on and on and on. But I find it intriguing that it's wedged in here with all these um, sexual things. These, these things that regard purity. But then again, I think in our time at least, it's not that surprising because we are notorious for idolizing sex. It's on every commercial just about. Every TV show. Jamie and I have talked about this as we're considering watching a movie here or there and we look at the rating and we say, well, that doesn't mean what it used to mean. We need to get into more detail because we so idolize this impurity as a culture that it's okay and so pervasive that it can be anywhere and it's acceptable. I think Paul is primarily talking about idolizing sex or sexuality right there. Although other things could be plugged in. He goes on, he says, nor will adulterers inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice their sexual immorality with others. Nor men who practice homosexuality. We, we like to major on that one, don't we? There are two Greek terms there, actually. And your Bible should have the footnote to explain exactly what I'm about to say. The, there's two Greek terms there. If I could pronounce Greek, I'd say them for you. But they include both the passive and active partner in homosexuality. So anybody who has even an inkling of action in homosexuality fits that list. Those sexual sins condemn, if not 100% of humanity, 99% of humanity. Because since the time of Paul writing this, humanity has struggled with sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, and homosexuality. Verse 10, he continues on. It's not just these sins that we classify as big and grand and enormous. It's any kind of sin. Thievery. Those who steal things. 
They might steal time. They might steal money. They might steal property. They might steal affections. Those who are greedy. That word's used primarily for money in the Bible in the New Testament. Greedy for gain, greedy for possessions, greedy for money. There are other times it's used greedy for every kind of impurity. It's overindulgent indulgence in, in sin. Drunkenness. Revilers. I actually wanted to look that word up in the dictionary and in the modern dictionary that the word reviler refers to someone who is abusive in their language. So they're hateful, they're harsh, they're rude, disrespectful, verbally and emotionally abusive. Swindlers, verse 10, those who try to cheat people, who are lying and, and conniving and sneaky. He repeats it again. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sobering and very hard list. It's a very frank list. And you ought to be identifying yourself in it. That is Paul's point. If you are skimming over that list superficially and thinking, yeah, 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 I agree, I agree, I agree, those people and those people and those people and those people, you miss the whole point. Because the point is you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we don't highlight one of those sins over against another one. That is a great fault of the church. We don't say sexual immorality or, or homosexuality is, is greater than drunkenness or swindlers because Paul says it doesn't matter, none of them get in the kingdom. And if that's, if that's true, this is just a total side note, we ought to be such a safe place to own up to our struggles. Because it doesn't matter what your struggle is, we're in this together, and no sin in this world gets you entrance into the kingdom. So don't, don't superficially read over this list and just half-heartedly agree, thinking, yeah, those people, those people, those people. Realize that it's you, it's your heart that's condemned. It's your flesh that's dragging you down to the pits of hell. It's your sin that doesn't let you enter into God's blessing. That's a weighty thought and a weighty subject. And it's meant to, it's intended to bring us low so that verse 11 would lift us high in Christ because that is the glory of the Gospel. And this is where the good news is, is ushered in. We're brought to this very hopeless and despairing place realizing our guilt and the significance and penalty of our guilt. The penalty of our guilt is not entrance into the kingdom of God and entrance into eternal punishment which is right and just for our sins. That's the hopeless, despairing place we, we find ourselves. But Paul is drawing the contrast for these Corinthian believers in verse 11. And he says, such were some of you. And I find that to be one of the most remarkable small phrases in all of the Bible. Because he's looking at this church. And it is a messed up church. 
And they struggle with a lot of things. And they have a whole lot of problems. And he looks at them. And he says, You were sexually immoral. You were idolaters and adulterers. You were people practicing homosexuality, living in that lifestyle. You were thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. And yet you're still the church. Which tells me something significant. All the people in that list are condemned and separated from God's kingdom. But none of the people in that list are beyond saving. None of the people in that list are beyond the grace of God. Beyond the extension of God's loving favor. Every person found in that list in verse 9 and 10 can be saved and forgiven. Such were some of you. The remarkable truth about verse 11 is its past tense. Such were some of you. That goes back to being new creations in Christ. We're made different, right? We have new identities. We were these things. Also, what's remarkable about verse 11 is it implies that it's still an issue for some. Some are still struggling with sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery and greediness and drunkenness and reviling and and being swindlers. But the key is now they're struggling. And they're no longer living that way. They're fighting. They're being made new. The past tense of verse 11 is awesome. You can find yourself in this list and know that you're not beyond God's desire and ability to save. Such were some of you, Corinthians. You were as deep as you could be in these, in, in these sins. You were so separated from the kingdom of God. So far removed. So deep into deception. So deep into sin and ungodly living. But that is how you were. That is what you used to be. Your identity is new. And something has happened. And that's the rest of verse 11. What has happened to change them from not inheriting the kingdom of God to now being saints in Jesus Christ? What's changed them? What makes verse 11 the past tense? Such were some of you, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of what Christ has done for us and it tells us what Christ thinks of us. You were washed. Covered in the filth of sin. Covered in the filth of a sinful lifestyle. And if God has quickened your heart and awakened your heart to realize that you're a sinner then you quite easily know the shame that's accompanied with that. I I would ask us to raise our hands, I guess, if I was wanting to make us more transparent, but I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'll just raise my hand and say that I am ashamed of my past. Ashamed of my sin. All that I've ever done in this world and all that I've ever committed and all that I've ever struggled with, it does not bring me pleasure. I echo what Paul says a lot in Romans 7. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I hate the things that I do. I hate the things that I've done. I understand the shame that comes with a sinful lifestyle. And I would also just say, if you don't, you might not know salvation. Shame, regret, guilt, pain is a very real byproduct of sin. And those of us who know Christ know those feelings and experiences. But the beauty of the gospel is we are washed. The stains of sin and the muck and mire of shame and the burden of guilt has been wiped away. The blood of Christ consuming us. I still live in this body of death, but my soul is spotless like Jesus. Every ounce of wickedness has been chased away by a red flood. Every ounce of shame and guilt and regret dealt with. Emberly now is in this stage of life where she likes to go out in the sprinkler. She doesn't like the sprinkler sprayer, but she likes to be out there with it and she loves to get her feet in the mud. And that's what I have this image of. Mud covering us. And you take her and you set her in the bath and you let the water run over it and it just melts away. God has done that spiritually for our souls. The disgust, the grotesqueness of sin that has corroded our hearts and set us as guilty before God and made us unable to enter the kingdom. God in His infinite love and mercy says, I will wipe it all away. You know what else strikes me as remarkable there? Is all that's involved with cleaning a dirty baby. Sometimes you get dirty yourself. And sometimes it takes time. And sometimes you have to put forth great, great effort. And you know what? Christ was willing to do all of that for us. Willing to get dirty, right? Take our sin upon Himself. Willing to invest Himself on the cross that you might be clean. The gospel is wonderful and the love of God extended to us is wonderful. He was willing to do the work necessary to wipe your soul pure. Paul says you are sanctified. You're not just washed, you're sanctified. These, these aren't just three things saying the same thing. In one sense they are, but they're also distinct terminology. You are washed, you are sanctified. Let's draw a distinction here. This isn't uh, the sanctification that we often think of where we're being conformed into the image of Christ, being made more and more holy. This is, if we take the order literally, this is a, a sanctified that comes before justification and it's a past tense term, not a present tense or continuation term. It's not you are being sanctified, which we know Paul uses that language before. It's not the word sanctification, which implies a continuation. It's a past tense sanctified, which means it takes... It took place in an instant at the moment of washing. So it's a different form of sanctified than what we normally think of in theological terms. What he's saying here is you were essentially set apart. You were washed. And then set apart to God. That's what it means to be sanctified. 
And that's why we're undergoing the process of sanctification to one day, ultimately in glorification. Those are big terms be set aside, set apart with God. But even at the moment of salvation, we're now set apart from the world, aren't we? We're no longer children of the world. We're now children of God. This place is no longer our home. We're now aliens and sojourners and strangers in this land. So we were sanctified, pulled away from the rest and set aside as special to God. You know, God does that all throughout the Bible. He does that in the Old Testament. We think particularly about the the temple or the tabernacle. And there's these instruments, utensils and tools and things set up in the temple and the tabernacle. And God says they're holy things. We ask ourselves, why are they holy? Because they're made out of the same kind of materials that other things in this world are made out of gold. Gold's relatively common. And other gold things aren't holy. As God says, the gold things in the temple are holy. So what makes them so special? What sets them apart? It's God Himself. And just the mere fact that God says, I'm setting this apart to Myself, makes something holy, unique, special. And the same thing with us. Just like the tools and the instruments in the temple, we are set apart by God's desire. And that set-apartness makes us holy and special to Him. God would look upon those who had no access to His kingdom. Who were the exact opposite of Him. And say, I'm going to wash them. And I'm going to set them apart as mine. There are things in my house. Things here at church, quite frankly. Where they've reached a certain sense of disgustingness. That I just flat out throw them away. And there's some things at home I think I'd rather buy a new one when the time comes than keep this. Because it's filth, it's beyond cleaning, and there's germs. God doesn't do that with us. He looks at the muck and mire and sinfulness of our soul and He says, I will clean, I will restore, I will make new, I will set apart as mine. You may feel guilt and shame and and regret, and you're still wrestling through those consequences of the sin in your life. But know this truth and know the, the blessing of the gospel is that God not only washes you, but he sets you apart as his, even as sinful as you are and have been. The last thing Paul mentions in this verse is you were justified. It's a legal term, justification. That does refer to our salvation. It refers to our legal standing before God. Justified for Christians is always a past tense term. In the sense that we are once and forever justified before God in Jesus Christ. Which means we stand before the judge who is God. And though technically guilty by our acts and deeds and nature. We're forgiven through Christ. Justified. Made as if we haven't ever even sinned before God. That's a remarkable reality as well, isn't it? That the judge who is holy and pure and mighty and majestic and just would say, I see you through the sacrifice of Christ. You are treated now as if you've never sinned. You are loved and regarded Just the same as Jesus Christ is before the Father. As spotless and sinless as Jesus is, 
and as pleasing to the Father as Jesus is, so too are all those who are found in Him because of Him. That's why it's such a big deal for Romans 4, Paul to say that God so set on being both just and the justifier. It's Romans 3 actually. Being just and the justifier. He doesn't sacrifice His justice, but He shows us mercy and justifying us through Christ. And so, we take these people mentioned in verse 9 and 10, people who don't get into the kingdom, people who are deceived, people who are so sinful beyond measure, and we find God intervening in their life and making all of their sinful identity their past and saying, you're now washed, you're now set apart to Me, you're now forever forgiven. And all accomplished in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Two things are being said there as well because He's separating them by the word and. It's made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. We sang about the cross this morning. That's how verse 11 is possible. That Christ would look upon the sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, and say, I'll take that upon myself for them. What kind of love has to be in that, the heart of that God? What kind of mercy must Christ possess? What kind of patience must be in His heart to look at those who are the exact opposite of who He is and have scorned Him and rebelled against Him and to think and to do, not just think, but to do, to look at them and say, in their worst condition, I will take it upon myself and die on their behalf. And we're not talking just dying, just giving up His last breath. We're talking spiritually drinking in the wrath of God for sin. What's going on in the heart of God to look at sinners such as us and say, I will become what they are, that they may become what I am. And I will take the penalty for their sin that they have committed and I will bear that penalty for them. That's love, church. That's the gospel. That's our salvation. That's our eternity. That is our entrance into the kingdom. Because Jesus took every ounce of your homosexuality upon Himself. You know what, church? Let us never be guilty of saying God doesn't love homosexuals. Because Jesus took on homosexuality to forgive the homosexual. He took on every bit of your adultery. He took on every bit of your sexual immorality. Every bit of the penalty deserved for your idolatry, your drunkenness, your swindling, your greedy, all of these things. He said, it's not beyond my desire to forgive. I will take it on myself. So that we could be washed, sanctified, justified in His name. The cross wasn't meaningless the cross wasn't pointless. The cross isn't just something fancy that we like to sing about. It is everything to us. Everything. But he doesn't just talk about Jesus and His work on the cross. He says, by the Spirit of God. So, notice the two language separations there. We're washed, sanctified, justified in Jesus and by the Spirit. In means the accomplished work of Christ. By means the application of the Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit actually applies the justification, the sanctified set-apartness, and, and the washing to your life. Which means God Himself enters into sinful humanity to make them new. In the Bible, we often find people who are called unclean, lepers most commonly. We talked about this last week a little bit. They were in jeopardy of making everybody else unclean because unclean things make clean things unclean in religious terminology. Jesus is the only one who can make unclean things clean. And so He's the only one we find reaching out to lepers. He's the only one we find interacting with uh, certain demonic uh, instances. Because He has such holiness and power and glory to overcome that which is unclean. And that includes our very souls. He is the only one who reaches in and dwells within sinful humanity to make them clean. And He has done so through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies all of the wonders of salvation to us. In other words, let's couple these things together. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and the power and name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the application of the Spirit of God. In other words, by divine desire. By divine desire, you've been forgiven. That tells us, that tells me, God wants to forgive your sin. God delights in forgiving sinners. God rejoices in the repentance of sinners. What a wonderful truth. I find myself in verse 9 and verse 10 of this passage. And by the mercy and grace of Christ, I find myself in verse 11 as well. And most of us do that are here this morning. And that means something for us. That means that the affections of our hearts ought to be stirred to Jesus immensely from this text. Because we were the ones not able to inherit the kingdom. We were the ones stuck in the muck and mire and rut of our sinful life. And Christ made all that past tense for us. Washing us, sanctifying us, justifying us all by His divine desire. You notice verse 11 has nothing to do with what we do. It's all about what God has done. We make verse 9 and 10 true. Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest theologians said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And that's what this passage tells us. We bring verse 9 and 10 to the table. God brings verse 11 to the table. And because God brings verse 11 to the table, we can dwell in safety, confidence, joy, and hope right then and there. We get into the kingdom because God the King desires it. And in washing us, sanctifying us, justifying us. Oh Christian, let joy well up in your heart. Let satisfaction and pleasure and delight in Jesus Christ well up in your heart. An unbeliever this morning, Maybe for the first time you've realized the unchanging reality of verse 9. That sin means you don't dwell with God. 
guess what? Verse 11 is still possible for you. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. It's a favorable time. And he doesn't just mean this day, although that's just as true. He means this age that we're living in. You are living in the time. You're born in the time. And you're in Trinity Baptist Church this morning because God wants you to hear the Gospel. Don't listen to it in vain. Realize what your sin gets you. Separation from God. And realize the free offer of salvation in Jesus. That you can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. And welcomed into the kingdom at Christ's return. I don't know what's going on in your heart this week. I know what's going on in mine and that's it. And I don't know the shame and guilt and regret that you're struggling with. But I know that for both, believer and unbeliever alike, this verse can take it away. For those of us who are already Christians, we can rest here and ought to rest here. And for those of you who are not Christians yet, you ought to see the truth, the blessed truth of this reality and come running to the arms of the Savior. He's done all the work so that you can be washed, sanctified, Justify that you can be forgiven and your sinful life separated from God can be past tense. Don't take this text lightly. Lord, sometimes you just want to let your word speak for itself. Sometimes we just want to brag upon you. That's what we do coming to this verse today. These these three verses, God, they're, they're so powerful. We talk about being new. We, we rejoice about being made new creations in You. This, this is the description of that, God. In, in the grand scheme for the Corinthian church, this should unify us, right? We're, we're all in the same place, Lord, and under the same mercy and the same grace. And yet individually... This should stir our affections for You. The unbeliever should flock to You. Should trip over their own feet trying to get to You. And we who have been made alive and born again, we ought to cling steadfastly to You. I still feel called and, and, and tempted to, to go back to my past life. My flesh still wages war against me. I must remember that I'm new. Find my new identity in You. My new treasure and delight in You. This is true of all of us. Oh Lord, Your children that are here this morning, You know who they are. Let the glorious truth of this passage sit on their hearts that they might be free and liberated from sin and the accusations of the enemy. And for those of you, God, who do not belong to you yet, for those of those here, those people here who do not belong to you yet, God, convict them. They are here by your design to hear the gospel. You want them to see and believe and be saved. So we ask that you would do that work for your glory and our good. All in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.